Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. You've been hearing ads for Zencaster these past months. Interested in sponsoring this show or podcast ads for your business? Go to zen.ai forward slash the archaeology show and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 167. On today's show, we talk about Pueblo Bonito, Australian settlers, and dogs in Jamestown. Let's dig a little deeper into that dog thigh when we're cold and starving and hungry in the wintertime. Oh, wow. Yeah, no. Like a, like a dark fast. Yeah. All right. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Pretty good. Freezing cold. I know. I'm like here in my sweatshirt, zipped all the way up with a heated blanket on my lap and slippers. <laughs> like, what happened? We yeah. came to Oregon and found winter. <laughs> I know. It's April. Yeah. What is going on? In fact, it hailed today so much so that for a little while before it melted, yeah. it looked like snow. Yeah, it did. It yeah, did. all over the place. Yep. And all I was thinking was our brand new solar panels on top of the roof are just getting pounded. <laughs> pounded by hail. By a little... I mean, I hope they're okay. Little weather pebbles. I hope they're hailproof. But who mm. knows? I mean, it depends on the hail. A lot of hail is like really soft. It's just like yeah. formed up and not really. This looked like pretty soft hail. So I think we're yeah. probably okay. It sound like soft hail. <laughs> well, speaking of weather destroying stuff, mm-hmm. let's talk about Pueblo Benito. Oh, yes. Yeah. There were some good articles in Plus One in the last couple of weeks. And there's always good articles in Plus One. Yeah. And we've got actually two from there. This first one is called The Deterioration of the Pueblo Benito Great House in the Chaco Culture National Historic Park, New Mexico, USA, by Henry L. Short. Published on April 5th, 2022. Nice. All right. So the long and the short of this is, first off, we've talked about Chaco Canyon. Yeah, we did just recently in a Timelines episode where we were looking at the different cultures in North America at the same time. Yeah. So, and Chaco was one of them. Yeah, go find that episode because I'm not going to do all the links again. There's a whole yeah. series of links to other APN podcasts and yeah. sources about Chaco because there was a whole Site Bites, which is a little like mini series. Yeah. Yeah, about Chaco, Chaco Canyon. So, you can uh, you can search yeah. Site Bites. You can go to arcpodnet.com, type in Chaco Canyon on the main page there. It's like so much will come up. We, so much. We, Chaco is just a wonderful thing to talk about and it comes up so often and people are always doing research there. So there's just so much to know about. Right, right. 
So Chaco, to remind you, dates from 850 to 1150 CE, give or take. Mm-hmm. And the great houses there, like Pueblo Benito, the one we're going to talk about, were mm-hmm. built of quarried sandstones, wooden timbers, and mud mortar. Oh, okay. Yeah. So were they looking at like the actual like structures themselves in this study? Like what were they... Yeah, what were they doing? Yeah, so this guy, Henry Short, uh, who I didn't really look for much information on, but Plus One doesn't really give much about the author either. No, I they'll mean, just give you like a link to like an email or yeah, something, basically. Yeah. yeah, there's not even that really that I can see. Hmm. So anyway, he did a, an examination essentially of some Chacoan photographs, right? Okay. And when I say some, I mean about 4,150 of Pueblo Benito alone. There are that many pictures? Of just Pueblo Benito. Wow. Pueblo Benito is the massive, large, great house that is really close to the the visitor center. If you ever visit Chaco mm-hmm. Canyon, it's right down there in the canyon, right front and center. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of where you come in. You see it right away. Yeah, and it's, it's super big. big. And it's like one of the focal points of visiting. Yeah. And when we went about 10 years ago, you could walk all the way through it and mm-hmm. take pictures and do everything. So I guess for this study, there probably were like tons of pictures to, to examine so this current study, as I mentioned, based on photographs, the author and if plus one, all the articles are are open source, so right. you can go there and go Read through the it. Whole thing. Yeah. He has a link in the article really early on to the collection of photographs you can look at online, mm. right? So these photographs that he looked at were taken between 1887 and roughly the 1920s. So four thousand pictures were taken of Pueblo Bonito. From yeah. 1887 to the 1920s. Yeah. That's so many pictures in a time yes. when owning a camera wasn't even common. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. So that's a lot. Yeah. He tried to determine if structural damages depicted on the photographs could either be attributed to identifiable agents that might have been present when Pueblo Manito was occupied or to something that was like taking place or happening after it was abandoned. Okay. So whether the issues with the structure were caused by the people who lived in them or by something that happened after they well, were and, abandoned. And not like not like they're looking not at caused. something that happened 900 years ago, like, uh-huh. oh, this is still broken 900 years ago. But the ongoing deterioration of the structure, is it problems they also had to deal with? Oh. Not like somebody came in and knocked a wall down 200 years after they left it. Okay. It's like while they were living there, is the is the damage we're seeing today consistent with what they would have dealt with on a daily basis? Like what does erosion do to a wall over 40 years today? Is that the same right. kind of erosion they would have been dealing with in the you know thousands and 1100s when they were living yeah, there? when they're like living in it. Okay, right. okay, yeah. cool. And it's funny you say erosion because that's kind of part of it, but not really. Okay. Yeah, so one likely agent though for and agents are just things that do stuff yeah things um, that cause anth- issues right from an anthropological sense mm-hmm. um, one likely agent is the inability he said <laughs> for the ancestral Pueblo and engineers which I think inability and also saying the words engineers is, is adding a lot of inference <laughs> to who built these things yeah and what they knew and didn't right, know right. yeah um, to manage impacts of weather aka the annual precipitation mm. um, is was probably one likely cause of this mm-hmm. deterioration so now I, I want to talk about engineers for a second because he, he makes a, a, just an assumption with that one statement that there were people who were specialized in building this stuff but it makes me kind of wonder, you know, you, you talk about like Plains Indians with their teepees and, you know, other Native Americans, other groups around the world with the mm-hmm. structures that they built. It's like you don't have people going off to work and, and doing different things. You don't have, yeah. 
you don't have people sitting around watching Netflix and playing video games all day and, and living off government paychecks. You got to live and survive. And I, and I have to imagine that like a lot of people had the knowledge of how to maintain your home. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like most people who live in a house today know how to sweep it out and keep the floor clean. I feel like back in the day, it would have been like, okay, so I'm going to sweep it out, keep the floor plain, clean and repair this wall. Right. Like, I don't think they would have had to call somebody in specially to repair the wall. Maybe not to repair, but the initial building of the structure, they must have had people who specialized in the technology. Techniques. Well, we'll talk about that. At least because of the uniformity yeah. in the types of structures that you see. So somebody was directing how they were done, probably. Maybe. 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 Not okay. necessarily, though. Yeah. So another thing, uh, another agent of, uh, I guess, destruction mm-hmm. would have obviously been wood deterioration. Oh, sure. And yeah. Now, we were there. Wood planks were used for, what is it, like window and door frame? Like the lentils? Yeah, that's yeah. what we're looking for, over yeah. the top. Mm-hmm. And and then also for like structural components in between floors. Because mm-hmm. Pueblo Manito is three, four, sometimes five stories high, depending on where you're looking at it. Yeah, and like if you can imagine yeah. like an adobe structure, you'd see the end of the, not planks so much as like yeah. large branches or almost. Right. Yeah, I mean they were they were cut cut pieces of wood, you yeah. know, whatever they were, but um, but you you would see them sticking out of the floor yeah. as like a almost like a temper for the floor, kind of exactly. And they had no way to treat this wood, yeah. So depending on what they did prior to installing it into the structure, because mm-hmm. I guess if you I don't know if you would have you know debarked it and let it sit out to and let it sit out to you know cure or something like that it, it would have like dried out with all its moisture and stuff mm-hmm. but i don't know at what point in time they put them into the structures but it seemed pretty clear to this guy for example that when you're looking at these things you know it would take perhaps a couple decades for it to you know actually deteriorate and then the wood would have to be replaced that's mm-hmm. just normal maintenance yeah you know wood just isn't going to last that long the wood that you can see currently in the structures is there because it is surrounded by a mud matrix so basically like preserved the wood well kind kind of of. it it probably wouldn't have any good structural stability right now it just retains its shape oh okay so if you were to go like stress it a little bit it'll probably just fall to pieces okay yeah gotcha so another thing that could have happened and, and again, due to water action, and I forgot to mention when I mentioned the the annual precipitation, right now that's been measured for this time period because you know, there's various ways of mm-hmm. looking at past precipitation rates. Right. I think I saw in the article is about 200 millimeters a year, Oh, okay. which is actually quite a bit. Yeah, more that's than more than you would think for like a high desert area. Yeah, I think they kind of get it all at once. Yeah, well, it might be <laughs> snow too. Like they definitely got yeah, snow there, I'm yeah, sure. So, yeah. For sure. So... Looking at that water, he, he used some, in this article, some engineering terms. That water could have affected the mud mortar in a way that kind of unstabilized or destabilized, destabilized. the mud mortar, uh-huh. took some of it away, uh-huh. uh, so so to speak, and then created what they call unstable gravity load paths. So you've got big stones that are put together, bigger ones on, oh, on yeah. underneath smaller ones. Uh-huh. The bigger ones were put into this mud mortar as kind of a base, and then the mud mortar was put in between them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, between the stones and the mortar, you've got, now again, they're not really engineers, they're not doing math, but to the best of their ability, they tried to put the bigger ones on the bottom, the smaller ones on the top, so mm-hmm. you have obviously no, not as much stress on smaller ones. Right. 
that being said, when the mortar would kind of deteriorate, it would shift things around a little bit and move them around and create what they call the unstable gravity load paths. And of course, the ancestral Pobloans would have known nothing about that, but they right. would have seen the effects of it pretty quickly. Is it basically just like water runoff paths, basically? Like like water would be running off the roof or the top of something and it would generally go the same direction and wear out the mortar in the directions that it was running yeah. inconsistently, basically? But I don't think these paths are tied to those paths. I think okay. what he's talking about is the water would create its own path of least resistance yeah. and take mud mortar with it yeah, yeah. because it's water and it does uh-huh. that. But when it does that, it creates these, like if you were to see structurally see with some sort of futuristic device, you know, Mm -hmm. look into the rocks and stones and see where the pressure points are. Mm -hmm. As that mud deteriorates away, it would create different gravity, you know, points where gravity is affecting the stones stones in a way that, you know, causes them to to incorrectly load themselves. Unstable. Yeah. 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 Okay. Got it. Yeah. So another thing that water would do is cause ponding of water and ponding just means collecting water. Mm -hmm. So water would collect in different areas. And then um, if it does that and then the walls freeze Mm -hmm. or or it freezes where that is, Mm -hmm. um, obviously that could cause a blowout of certain wall segments. Right. Right. Okay. So... And then occasional full-scale flooding could have disrupted sure. the foundations because I mean, it happens. Disrupt everything. They, I mean, it's a canyon. Yeah, and floods. Yeah. yeah, they disrupt any structure, no matter what time period you're talking about. So, right. yeah. Now, what he found at Pueblo Bonito is assumed to have happened at the other pueblos around. Mm-hmm. Although some of those weren't built quite to the scale that Pueblo Bonito was, so right. some of the weight requirements and things like that would have been different. But it. He did, you know, the, what I've talked about here are what the results of the study actually were. You know, that these things that he can see in the photographs, and I, I think he looked at that time period because there has been stabilization efforts since then. Right, right. right? They've like added to them. So yeah. they're not in their original condition anymore like they were when these photographs were taken, or, mm-hmm. or at least the original discovered condition by yeah, they, know, they Europeans. Yeah, they weren't so much into preserving them in the 1800s, right. early 1900s. It was more like a. Ooh, look at this cool thing. Right. Not let's keep it from falling apart. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's pretty clear that at Pueblo Benito, this wasn't built as one thing like the pyramids, right? It was built over time right. as a collection of growing rooms. Right. Starting with like kivas, you know, like the mud underground, mud lined structures, because mm-hmm. there's kivas inside Pueblo Benito. And then building on top of that, structures on top of that, and then and then continuing to climb structures on top of structures on top of structures. Right. You know, floors. I think, like I said, up to five floors, I think I yeah. saw near the canyon wall, kind of descended out, probably used the wall partially as stability yeah. for that. But he says that given the volatility of the construction methods and how things would naturally just kind of fall apart, even if if you're trying to take care of them, mm-hmm. that the lifetime of individually constructed rooms at Pueblo Manito may have only been a couple of decades mm. before they'd have to really structurally redo dismantle it. something and redo it. Which you know? makes sense because I mean, it was there from 850 to 1150, I think. In, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. But, it, you know, with five floors and all the rooms that it has, I don't think it was like that for that whole 400 year chunk of time. Oh no, it was built upon. Yeah, so we're seeing it at the end of its life. Exactly. So it makes sense that, you know, they were renovating floor two and oh, hey, let's just throw on a floor three (laughs) while we're doing that. So it sort of speaks to the natural like evolution of the size of the building that they had to do these renovations every couple decades and then, you know, they probably added on to it at the same time. Why not? (laughs) It's really cool. Indeed. Yeah. So yeah, that was a pretty cool study and it, it just goes to show that 
you know, while this is the archaeology show, sometimes archaeology is just looking at historical looking documents at and records. Yeah. yeah, he didn't do any digging. Well, it's so interesting to think what can these historical photographs show you that that photos today won't show you because of preservation efforts. Right. It's it sucks to think of it, but because they didn't care about preservation 100 years ago, you might be able to get more information out of those photos than you can out of any photos or more modern, you know, images from today. Yeah, well, this also goes to show you what the future effects of things you're doing today could have on an archaeological site, right? Mm-hmm. Like like we call a full-scale investigation a data recovery. Mm-hmm. We don't call it artifact recovery. We don't call it feature recovery. No. We call it data recovery. Yeah. Because we're recovering data. We we take what seems like nonsensical pictures of, you know, dirt walls and stuff like that in and we, we sit there and we meticulously draw out mm-hmm. profiles and, and sketches and stuff like that. And sometimes it just seems when you're out there, like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah, with that like you know? microscopic bit of data that you're collecting. It's yeah. like, why am what I doing this? this? Yeah. yeah. And, and we're taking photographs of everything and we're just meticulously recording this stuff because as we're pulling these things out of the ground... It no longer exists. Yeah, you're destroying the context. Yeah, so you're you have destroying to, it. You have to get all of the information you can out of it because you don't know what future yeah. researchers might be able to discover about something. Exactly. I mean, who knew 100 years plus ago, you know, 120 years ago when they were taking these photos, that they would come in handy. It'd be used for a study. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. So... And I love hearing about some sites, too, where they're purposely not excavating all of it and leaving some for the future. So future archaeologists have something to potentially discover if they have new techniques and are looking for new and different things. Mm-hmm. Like the Terracotta Army comes to mind immediately. They're purposely not excavating some of it, partly because of preservation issues, but also because save it for the future. Because who knows what the future holds as far as technology goes. Right. All right. Well... You know who really could have used a nice place to stay? (laughs) The British colonists that landed in Australia in the mid-1800s. They had too much sunshine and not enough vitamin C. (laughs) Back in a minute. Wow. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 167. And we are now going to talk about another Plus One article. And it's called... Health Effects of European Colonization, an Investigation of Skeletal Remains from 19th to Early 20th Century Migrant Settlers in South Australia. It's interesting saying South Australia because Australia means South Land, but we'll get back to that in a minute. Oh. Yeah. So, and I suppose since this is about British colonists, I should say skeletal because <laughs> that's how skeletal. they say it. Yeah. <laughs> They're skeletons. Oh my God. No, skeletons. They say skeletons, but then it's skeletal. Skeletal, right. So I want to call them skeletons from now on. <laughs> okay. It's worth that. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. So researchers 
for this study analyzed the remains of British migrants from the site of an Anglican parish cemetery near Australia's southern coastline. The cemetery was actually in use from 1847 to 1927. Okay. It's old. Now, yeah, and when they were looking at the cemetery, amongst the people that they excavated and they analyzed bone and teeth enamel for vitamins and, you know, you could just see what they were eating, see mm-hmm. what their health was, their general yeah, your condition. Your teeth can tell you so much. Yeah. So that's a that's a big one to study when you're trying to figure out specific things about a population. Exactly. Yeah. What they found overall were evidence of deficiencies in iron and some interesting levels of vitamins C and D. Mm. So there was actually more vitamin D found in the remains of the Australian people that were buried there versus their contemporaries buried in England. Well, duh. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, yeah. <laughs> vitamin D comes from sunlight <laughs> and Australia, from what I understand, is a lot sunny. sunnier than England is. It's pretty but, sunny. Yeah. Yeah. That, I don't think England even has sunshine. So that's, <laughs> <right>. yeah. <laughs> I've um, never been to either place, but right, I'm right. assuming. In general as well, they also had lower levels of vitamin C as compared to those buried in Britain. And that's more attributed to Diet just nutrition. And, yeah. Because yeah. vitamin C is like your... Oranges and vegetables and things like that, right? So, yeah. A couple other interesting things they found was that many of the, I guess, physiological changes that were seen occurred during the latter half of an individual's life in some of the cases. Okay. And in other cases, they showed some health stresses experienced by some during the fetal stage. So when they were, you know, in utero and then Uh within the first 25 years of somebody's life. So so what they kind of concluded from this, looking at the different ages of the people and and when these people were buried and you know dating not, not only the ages but like dating the remains themselves was that the new colony was somewhat unprepared right and sure. and people when they first came to this colony even after it was established were also unprepared for the southern australian lifestyle right and generally when people came to this colony they were you know not children they were adults so mm-hmm. over 25 years old and give or take at, just for purposes of this study mm-hmm. and The increase of vitamin D, lack of vitamin C, lack of iron showed that when they first got there, and I, I have, I have a feeling that the journey itself wasn't too great either. But well, yeah, I mean, you you hear about sailors (laughs) having a problem with scurvy, which is vitamin C. So if their vitamin C levels were lower than expected, that could Mm -hmm. be attributed to the lack of fresh vegetables on a sea, you know, crossing. Yeah, 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 for sure. But this just showed that once people got there, it was hard to live there. Yeah, essentially in the early days, it got better. It got better, which we'll see. And then, of course. As I mentioned, the people that were born there also had some some harsher conditions. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of tell just by looking at the remains, somebody who was born there versus somebody who was not as yeah. well. Because yeah. you can see the teeth are like layers. Right. You can look back through the teeth by looking at the layers of enamel on the teeth. Mm-hmm. And you can you can kind of see what the, what happened early on in their life and then later on in their life as well. So that's kind of that's kind of neat. It's interesting that they're able to to draw conclusions about like fetal conditions mm-hmm. from their adult teeth. Well, I, that's not true because the you know your baby teeth fall out. So they're different teeth. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But I I guess I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can come up with with, you know, fetal to 25 years old is they have actual burials that are young. Oh, I see. Okay. The only, so they, they didn't really talk about that much at least oh, in the parts okay. I read. So they have some child burials and and then they're I mean, able more to draw than conclusions. Likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, obviously infant mortality is a thing, For sure. so there probably were a lot of young young burials. Got it. Exactly. And with this relatively new colony, well, at least 
new for Australia. One of the other things they were able to determine with this excavation and analysis was the economic status of the migrants through time mm-hmm. as they as they went along. Part of the part of the reason was. I mean, this is a British cemetery. I mean, it's an Anglican parish cemetery, but let's be honest, this is a British cemetery pretty much run and owned by the British government. Right. And... You know, there was like the nice part, and then there was the free part. Oh yeah. They wouldn't. I mean, they were they were not so callous as to say, you know, if you're poor, you can't be buried here, because religion was king. Mm-hmm. But well, the- literally, but <laughs> or queen. Well, the best parts of the cemetery were saved for the, the yeah. people that could afford it, basically. Basically, yeah. Okay, yeah. But one of the things that they noticed is that you know, while this was initially used in the 1840s, from about the 1870s onward, things we're starting to get better there because more and more people were becoming prosperous as indicated by their diet and is also indicated by not being buried, like fewer burials in the free part. In the free area. Okay. Yeah. So I was thinking either, yes, that's true. Or, you know, maybe somebody was in charge of the church that was just a little bit less crazy about that, you know, but (laughs) I doubt it. they lowered the rates on burials or something like that. (laughs) Like maybe they said, hey, let's just like unsegregate the cemetery and like bring everybody in. Uh, It's entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's basically it from this study. There's a lot of really cool things in the PLOS One article, and you can go read that, and they've got a lot of little charts and graphs if you're interested in that. So mm-hmm. like I said, PLOS One is a great source because the articles are open source, so you can pretty much see all the data that you want to read, and yeah. those links are in the show notes. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just mention a few things about Australia because these were early settlers in the 1840s and I just wanted to talk a little bit about the settlement of Australia. Yeah, because I was trying to think like when did the settlement of Australia begin? Like when did all of that happen? Well, pretty much everybody's at least heard that Australia is a land of convicts. Right. But what that means is a British settlement of Australia began really on January 26, 1788, exactly that day. Okay. And that's when a <laughs> fleet of 11 ships carrying convicts and Marines, basically, and other support people oh, okay. landed at New South Wales. Now, New South Wales is an Australian state yeah. right now, but that's what Australia was called was New at South the time, Wales. was New South Wales. The right. word Australia was not, so the continent wasn't called that. Right. Okay. Or And country. This date, uh, well, okay, let me back up a little bit. So it was a penal colony, so they had convicts down there. They weren't going to leave. The first group was 1,000 people with more than 700 convicts on these ships. And at least 30 men died en route in the eight-month journey because you had to go around the Horn of Africa and and get over. There was no Suez Canal. they really wanted those convicts away from from Europe, didn't they? (laughs) Well, and I don't know if it was a a secret desire of somebody to, or maybe not so secret, to try and colonize this land but use convicts to do it because realistically, I mean, it's not like they went there and built a prison. They were just exiled there. Just, yeah, yeah, and just the, living their lives. Right. Once the they captain, got there, right? the captain who was in charge of the ship, tried to get farmers and stuff to to go along, and and he tried to petition the government to have farmers and things like that come along, and they were just denied at every turn. Hmm. And eventually, you know. The people that were there had to figure it out. And it was pretty rough for the first 10, 20, 30 years. They didn't know how to farm. They, you know, the crops kept failing. They, right. they just had to live. Again, they didn't build a prison. They were just told, you're here now. Yeah. If you want to live, you'll figure you it fig- out. Figure out how to live. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it makes sense that the cemetery that they were excavating, they saw harsher effects on the body of, yeah. of poor nutrition and stuff like that earlier. And then it gets better later on as they get more prosperous, but like just 
learn that, how to cultivate food. <laughs> right. And this was a colony that came 60 years after these settlers. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. So, but, but these guys would have experienced the same things, right. like you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it was just really rough, but they, you know, they knew they weren't leaving. They did. They couldn't build ships and go. So mm-hmm. this is where they lived. And the first anniversary of that, they actually celebrated that day. Mm-hmm. And then I think on the 30 year anniversary, it was a big celebration, mm-hmm. a 30 year anniversary of the founding, basically, mm-hmm. of the colony, which is they're considering the founding of the country, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it became known as Australia Day today. And actually, I remember this because I, I have Australian colleagues with a company I'm working with. And they were like, oh, yeah, we're not working. It's Australia Day. I was like, <laughs> what the hell is Australia Day? <laughs> and it should come as no surprise that the Aboriginal Australians actually call it Invasion Day. Which makes total sense. Total sense. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. that's just a little bit of information about Australia. And as I mentioned before, Australia actually means like Australia. It's like Southern land. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, from a penal colony to Americans eating dogs in another oh, colony. Oh, boy. I know. And it was 160 years before this, but uh, (laughs) we're moving over to Jamestown on the other side of the break. Chris Webster here from the APN. You've heard me talk about Zencaster for a few months now, and there's never been a better time to check this out and start a podcast. Zencaster has hosting tools and both audio and video podcasting capability. Many of you have already clicked on the link in the show notes, and we thank you for that. Use the code TAS, that's T-A-S at the link in the show notes, or go to Zencaster.com and use the code, that's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com to get 30% off your first three months. Again, use the code TAS for 30% off your first three months at Zencaster.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to keep this conversation going? Want to talk to the hosts of this show and other fans? Then join our membership program and get exclusive access to the hosts, other fans, and early access to these episodes and bonus segments and content. You'll also get forever access to our live show back catalog and any other shows ad-free. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, our third and final segment of episode 167. Are you sure you don't want to call it the British Colonization Show? Because... I mean, I really <laughs> wasn't looking for a theme. They were just interesting <laughs> artifacts. Articles? Artifacts. Articles. So they, are, they will be artifacts that, at some point. Well, they're about artifacts in a lot mm-hmm. of cases. Yeah. I mean, that brings up kind of an interesting point. Are articles going to be artifacts? I mean, digital archaeology is a thing. Oh, yeah. And digital archaeology in the sense of recording digitally, like we talk about with WildNote and stuff like that. Right. But also the archaeology of digital things. Yeah. Yeah, which is a whole science that in itself. Is, are those called artifacts? It kind of breaks my brain a little bit to think about it. Yeah. Because, like, are they? Is an article that was written in 1960 an artifact? It's not digital, but it's if, paper, right? Well, right now, if it's in a paper magazine, the magazine is an artifact. The magazine is an artifact, yeah. but it's the content also. Well, it's, I mean, the content is the thing, though. It is. Yeah. That's very complicated. It is. <laughs> it's all about the content. Actually, the paper's not an artifact, but it is kind of. Well, the paper is what 
is the artifact. So like the, with a projectile point, if it wasn't shaped into a projectile point, it's just a billion year old rock at that point. It's just a rock. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. right. We're off the rails yeah, now. Yeah, we we're, we're veering, right. veering hard. <laughs> so there's an article at science.org called Jamestown Colonists May Have Kept and Eaten Indigenous American indigenous Dogs. American Dogs. Yeah. Okay. Explain that because... Well, the word indigenous means... No, I won't explain that. <laughs> so anyway... Jamestown Colony, the first permanent English colony in the United States, Mm -hmm. well, in what would become the the United States in the Americas. So that's what that is, full stop. Excavations at Jamestown that took place between 2007 and 2010. Now, there's been lots of excavations there. This study focused on a a collection that was excavated at that time. Mm -hmm. And this person was specific, or these authors were specifically looking at dog jawbones. Lots of things were found, of course, but they were interested in in the dog remains. Yeah, like why would there be dog remains in with the other remains? Right, right. I would guess is what prompted them to look at this, right? Well, what they're actually looking for is what is the ancestry of the dogs that were there in the remains, mm. right? And and we'll get to where they were found, but the the bigger question was what kind of dogs like were what they? Type, did they bring them with them? Yeah, like, were exactly. They, were they, yeah. I mean, so. the English had some pretty well-known breeds of dogs, and they're pretty strict about not crossbreeding. They love their purebreds, of mm-hmm. course. I mean, that's still a thing. Yeah. But they brought very particular dogs to do very particular things. So did the Spanish when they came before that. Mm-hmm. And they brought like these war dogs that were just crazy. But they, they were bred for that purpose. Mm-hmm. But there were also dogs that were brought to the Americas about 16,000 years ago. And the only two of which remain today uh-huh. are the Malamute and okay. the Alaskan Husky. Oh, okay. Yeah, so th- those dogs are still considered ancient breeds. Oh. They're American ancient breeds. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, but in the lower 48, pretty much all ancient dogs were you know, bred out or killed out at some point mm-hmm. right around this time. Okay. So, But we never really knew what was going on there. But anyway, back to the study. We'll, we'll get to some of that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this current study... They extracted mitochondrial DNA from the jawbones of these dogs, okay, right? that's cool. You now, the interesting thing about where these were found, they were found with fish bones and mussel shells and other food stuffs mm-hmm. in, in areas where people would be eating. So, kitchen trash, so, basically. So, kitchen trash. Uh-huh. And they did have what evidence of what looked like butchering marks on wow. them. Wow. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, you got to do what you got to do when you don't have food, right? Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly enough, in other layers dating to about 10 years later, they found more of that. So, it's not like they consistently found dogs oh, in the food trash. Oh, so it's related to specific times. Specific stresses, really, because yeah. you don't generally eat dogs. Dogs. No, right. crazy. And the dog bones that they found that had cut marks on them were indigenous dogs as opposed to dogs that were brought over from Europe or yes, somewhere else. We'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. Yeah. So these were all dated. So they just so they knew they had the right time period to the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And it may have been during the winter of, because they don't know exactly what date, but it may have been during the winter of 1609-1610, during a period of time with the Jamestown colony known as the Starving Time. The Starving Time. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of that. Everybody's heard of that probably if you've done any research on Jamestown. It was a really tough winter, right? They had no food. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing. And I'm... I'm actually kind of rethinking their conclusions, but the mitochondrial DNA, which looks down the, the, the mother's line yeah. you know, of something, revealed that the Jamestown dogs were unrelated to European dogs, which again were first brought to the Americas by the Spanish in the in the late 15th century. Okay. And they were unrelated to any British dog breeds that we know of as well. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So Interesting. I mean, they had 
literally no relation. Mm -hmm. They were instead most closely related to ancient dogs found in and around Illinois and Ohio around that time and Mm -hmm. distantly related to ancient Arctic dogs, including a 10,000 year old dog discovered in Alaska, considered the oldest dog in America. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So how did those dogs end up with the Jamestown colony? And here's another thing. The dogs were also not related to those found just 30 miles away in another excavation, which date to around 1000 to 1400 AD. What in the world? How'd they get there? Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, here's the thoughts in the article are that they were not necessarily crossbreeding their dogs, but Mm -hmm. getting dogs from From Native Native Americans, Americans. maybe through trade or something like that. Yeah, maybe. And I was kind of thinking like... I mean, they're going to look around when they're hungry. They're not going to eat their dogs. Yeah, they're they're going to go find something else. Right? Yeah, you know that. Now, if if for some reason during the starving time they couldn't find any other animals to kill or things like that, I mean, if they're, you know, dogs like to stray around, and if they get away from their their Native American counterparts, would they have just captured them and eaten them? Well. Stray animals can be a problem in a settled area, whether it's modern or historic. So maybe they had a stray dog problem going on and, you know, stray dogs meet starving times. What are you going to do? You got to eat, you know? And if those strays are coming in from interactions with Native Americans, then that would explain why they were indigenous to the to the Americas rather than being brought over from Europe. Right. I mean, I can't imagine they put that much effort into bringing dogs over from Europe in the first place because you have to feed them. mm -hmm. A lot goes into bringing bringing a healthy dog across the sea on a ship at that (laughs) time. So I, I wonder how many were even brought over to the Americas to begin with. Well, I think, I mean, the way... The way people love their dogs. Yeah, yeah. You know, Somebody rich enough who could they're just afford not, they're it. They're not just pets. And, yeah, you know? true. And I mean, like I said, the ancient dogs, the, the indigenous dog breeds mm-hmm. were gone in, in an evolutionary instant with the arrival of European dogs. Now, I think personally, um, I didn't really read this in the article, but if you just think about why the dogs would have disappeared, right? Mm-hmm. Why the ancient dog breeds are now gone. I think it's probably tied to Native Americans being forced onto reservations mm. because when when we started to basically destroy their homelands and we wouldn't let their dogs breed with, you know, British dogs. Mm-hmm. I keep saying we, but Europeans and British settlers wouldn't have let their dogs breed with their dogs because, again, they valued the purebred nature right. of their dogs. So right. they're not going to let that happen. I'm sure it did happen, but they're not going to let it happen yeah. intentionally. So when Native Americans are... I mean, I hate to say it, killed off when there's war, when they're moved on to reservations later on, when things like that happen. I mean, they're not going to be able to economically and from a food standpoint, be able to eat, feed those dogs either. Yeah. You know, so they're just going to get, they're just going to die out. Yeah. You know, and that's really the only plausible explanation for it. Because yeah. dogs are pretty ubiquitous. They will, they will have sex at any point in time <laughs> with any other dog. Yeah. It's not like you know? they were, you know able to neuter or spay dogs back then either so of course not yeah Yeah, they didn't even know that was a thing yeah yeah totally so well they did because there was like eunuchs in greece but either way right but um, it wasn't a common practice so right right so that's the only thing i can think of i didn't really read that in the article but i was just thinking about that after i read it and took some notes on it Mm -hmm. you know that that would make sense yeah the whole idea is very intriguing though to like look at the history of dogs and how I wish we could have David on here from from Life in Ruins. <laughs> he Ruins. might know more than us, but like, what's that history between yeah. the interactions of Native Americans with dogs and mm-hmm. and colonial settlers with dogs? It's just that's an interesting yeah. intersection point to to look at. 
Well, there's definitely dogs depicted in, in rock art, Native mm-hmm. American rock art. Yep. And and mentioned in Native American folktales and things like that. So mm-hmm. they liked their dogs as much as as yeah. much as any other culture. Yep. You know, so for sure. Anyway. Speaking of David with a Life and Ruins podcast, check out the Ethnosynology Instagram and TikTok accounts. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. David is always doing some really good stuff out there. And ethnosynology is basically the study of dogs and culture. Yeah. So, yeah. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. But it's definitely cool if you're interested in dogs and humans and their interactions. Right. He do- he talks a lot about that on his on his socials. I never really thought about it. Ethnosynology. Ethno really means like ethnography, mm-hmm. which is writing down and studying the culture of a thing. Mm-hmm. So ethnosynology, and synology would be the study of dogs. Mm-hmm. Ethnosynology would be studying the the culture and stories and how dogs related to, you know, humanity to probably. Yeah. But I wonder if archaeosynology is really a thing, you know, where people just study like dog remains oh, and dog stuff. maybe. And, yeah. 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 Hmm. That's crazy. Yep. All right. Well, that's about it. Kind of a couple short segments there, but they were fun news articles, so we wanted to talk about them. Mm-hmm, definitely. For members of the Archaeology Podcast Network, and if you're not a member, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash members. But for members, you can go to your member pages to the bonus content. We've got a fun little bonus segment for this episode for you to listen to. So I'm worried because I don't know what this bonus segment is. I'm very concerned. <laughs> And also coming up in the next few weeks, we've got a bunch of different episodes. We actually have two interviews planned for later this month, and they'll probably play sometime in early May, yep. early to late May, but one on an Egyptian Tutankhamun exhibit, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. And another interview with the author of a book called The First Black Archaeologist, The Life of John Wesley Gilbert. Mm-hmm. And we're currently reading that before the uh, interview. So yep. it's pretty cool. And those are going to be some fun ones. And we'll also have a, hopefully if we get our act together, a Timelines episode. So <laughs> anyway, check out our affiliate links. Check out the other podcasts on the APN. And if you're not a member and want to help us out, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash members. With that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Please consider joining our growing core of members over at archpodnet.com slash members. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.